Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you're a God that is always watching, that there is nothing that escapes your eye, that does serve as a warning to us that uh, we should flee from sin, but also that you're ready to hear our cry when uh, we uh, make uh, requests to you. And even this evening as we pray, we ask that uh, you would uh, see and respond uh, to some of the needs that uh, we will uh, be praying for this evening. Lord, we pray that you'd give us a mind to understand your word here this evening, and uh, as we look at this uh, very difficult passage, and uh, may you give us help uh, and uh, come to conclusions and understand uh, what you may have been trying to get across, and this we pray in Christ's name, amen. Uh, Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Uh, What I want to do here is just start off with the actual two stories themselves. Pastor Brian, if you want to go ahead and fade us to black on the screen behind me. <clears throat> I want us just to read these uh, three verses, Mark or Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 33. It says this, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among the herbs and becometh a tree so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable spake he unto them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. And this is one of the shorter passages that I will deal with uh, with you. Uh, normally, I cover multiple verses and whatever, but you know, three verses is not that long. But we're going to take the whole night to look at these because what you have just read is uh, probably one of the most difficult passages to interpret in all the Scripture. You may not think that. I just want you to read that opening statement that's there. I put it in there. It's from one of the commentaries uh, of the 15 that I kind of just went through to see where we were at in the interpretation of different things. William Strauss, uh, back in the early 1900s, uh, mid-1900s, made this statement. Diametrically opposed to one another are two accepted interpretations of the parable of the leaven. It is possible that more controversy has revolved around the explanation of this verse than any other single verse in the Bible. I did not realize that this was a problem for a while. But I remember about 25 years ago, I sat in a pastoral ordination at the church that I was working at, and uh, A pastoral ordination council is just simply a a term for firing squad uh, for pastors. If they want to become pastors, they have to survive the firing squad, and if they do, uh, then they're worthy of being a pastoral candidate. And so you question an individual about their life, and then you look at their doctrinal statements, and then you start asking them questions. And I can remember one uh, gentleman in the back, and he was known for being a cantankerous individual anyhow, as far as a pastor. And he asked this young man that was there, and he just simply said this, what's your interpretation of the parable of the leaven? 
And the young man did what most people do when they look at this. They go, well, it's a parable about uh, the expansion of what uh, is going on as far as the message of the gospel and just kind of the church expanding from uh, nothing to something. And that's, the, uh, you know, that's kind of what I take it to mean. And the man in the back said, well, you're incorrect. You're wrong. Just very blatant about this. He goes, and if you were understanding that if you're calling yourself a dispensationalist, you would never give that interpretation, ever. And the pastor that was the moderator, the pastor I worked for, he was the moderator of this whole thing, he just simply said this, okay, well, let's stop here for a second. And we're here to find out what his opinion is, and he has given it, and on that question, he's given his answer, that's great, we'll accept that as his answer, because we're just trying to find out what he thinks, and give him the answer, and he goes, and this is a controversial, or he goes, this is a passage that all of us here would disagree with one another on an interpretation if we went through the room, and these are all good men, these aren't, you know, people who are way off on different things. These are good men that are coming to this passage and going, we probably disagree on this. So you're, you're kind of going, well, what's so controversial about the fact that you have a mustard seed, which is the smallest of the seeds, and you go, what do you mean? There's smaller seeds than that when I look at my mustard, but if you, you know, you take the mustard that you typically see and you grind it up in your fingers, that dust that's there is seed. Uh, this grows up into a, a bush that's about, uh, it can be at maximum height, about 12 feet high. Which, no, not very impressive as far as bushes or trees, but you think about this, in, the, in this story it says that it actually becomes a tree where the birds nest in this, and you go, okay, all right, that's one parable. The other one is very common. You have someone who's baking bread. There's three measures of it. You say, what's that? That's about three gallons of flour. So they're talking here that you're probably feeding a community gathering of some kind uh, if you have a woman that's doing this. Uh, and she takes yeast, which, you know, you have this stuff that is uh, fermented from the previous occasion, the dough, you throw it in there, and you let it uh, expand and sit and let the bread rise, and then you cook it. And you go, that seems pretty simple. But then you go, how do you interpret this? Because there's no explanation and I'm going to give you right from the start what the two interpretations are. You look in your notes and you see there, it says two different interpretations and then it's got a, a blank line and it says of the kingdom. That blank there should have the word expansion. Okay, there are people that look at this and say, these parables are talking about the expansion of the kingdom kingdom work and what it's doing. And when it comes to the mustard seed, the interpretation I have there is this, is that the kingdom is going to expand from a small start to a point where all nations are a part of the kingdom. And so you have that interpretation where you have something small growing into something quite large. Um, okay, that uh, is a, a possible interpretation. And then for the leaven, if you believe that these the parables are about the expanding nature of the kingdom, you'd say this, the kingdom is going to greatly expand by the hidden working, okay, that's the other blank there, the hidden working of God. Because you really can't see the yeast at work, but you can see the effects of it. 
Okay, so like the spirit, you can't see the spirit. Uh, you can't see the you know spirit is another word for breath. You can't see the wind. You can't see uh, the wind. Hopefully, uh, you know, in the sense that some places that you know dusty, whatever, you might be able to see the, the wind kind of swirling, but you're really not seeing the wind. But the fact is, is you can see the effects of the wind. You really can't see it itself. So it is, in this case, that you're going to have this magnificent growth, and you're not going to see the working behind it, but it's going to happen. Okay? So that's one interpretation. Second interpretation that you have, and that's that next line down there that has the blank of the kingdom, I'm calling this the infiltration, okay? The infiltration of the kingdom. And when it comes to this uh, parable of the mustard seed, you have, uh, if you're interpreting it from this view, you're saying this, that the message of the kingdom presently will be infiltrated by Satan's workers. Okay? So the idea of infiltration here is that you've got bad things coming in. It's, it's like a, a, when you have combat units and you have guys that are doing guard duty at night, you're looking for infiltrators. You don't want them to come into the camp and do damage. Well, what you have here is that when you have this kingdom that's going on, the message of kingdom going out, there's Satan's workers that are there that are coming in to do damage. Not supposed to be there. Uh, when it comes to the interpretation of the leaven, if you have this idea, the message of the kingdom is going to be infiltrated by the leaven of false teaching and ideas. Okay, false teaching and ideas. You have the blank there in this. Now, you got the next note there, okay? Okay. If you were to do a survey of pastors and just go through and say, okay, you, you go through and who would take these type of positions? The first one with the expansion of the kingdom, you would have individuals that would be post-millennialists and amillennialists take the first interpretation. The second interpretation would be what most premillennialists and some amillennialists take as the right interpretation. Now, let me just stop here for a second, and you got those big terms, and suddenly you're just like, I have no idea what he just said. That word millennialist is re reference to the kingdom, okay? What your view of the kingdom is. The kingdom that the Bible talks about, what is your view about it? If you're a post-millennialist, you believe this. You're believing that we have to get society ready and bring the kingdom in. Because you think about what the kingdom had. It has uh, people in good health. There's peace. There's no war. Uh, the agriculture is to the point where you've got uh, sowing uh, happening while they're still harvesting. And the thought process for many individuals for years was there is this thing that we're supposed to be doing as Christians, making all of society and culture better so that the Lord could then come back after we've set up the kingdom. This is the view most oftentimes as you read in the 1800 commentaries and the early 1900 commentaries, you'll find a lot of people espouse this, but then you have World War I and World War II and you have civilized society going nuts. And they kind of go, no, nah, that may not be what the, you know, the, how the kingdom works. You have other individuals who are amillennialists. That word ah means no millennium. 
They don't believe that the kingdom is going to take place because the kingdom promises are related to the church right now. All those Old Testament prophecies that there's going to be a land and the, all of this, that that now is being spiritualized now in the sense of the church is doing all this stuff and the church right now is doing all this kind of kingdom stuff and these promises and eventually the Lord will just show up and we'll all go straight to heaven, okay? That's the whole idea, you know, the Lord will come back, we'll go straight to heaven, nothing here on earth, it's just the church right now is the kingdom. That's an amillennialist. A premillennialist is one who goes this, we're still before the Lord comes back. The Lord has got to rule and reign on the earth. All these promises of the Old Testament have to be fulfilled literally, if you believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture, that he's got to rule and reign here on the earth. And so that hasn't happened yet, so we're looking forward to the fact that there is going to be a kingdom someday, but not right now. We're preparing for it. We're getting the message of the kingdom out. That's what we're doing, but the kingdom's not right now. So you go through and you go, okay, there are people who believe that the kingdom, we have to set up for the kingdom, or we're actually setting up the kingdom, excuse me, or that the church is the kingdom, they would oftentimes go, well, the message is expanding right now, the church is expanding right now, and you kind of go, all right, I can see where they're headed with this because I would agree with them in some ways, that there's been an expansion of something. You get to the book of Acts, you have 120 people that are meeting in an upper room, insignificant Jewish town in the Roman Empire, Palestinian town it would have been referred to in in that culture and you have 120 people meeting there and all of a sudden they have this event that takes place where the spirit comes upon them 3,000 people get saved and not just a couple weeks later you got 5,000 people that are coming to this uh, religion and pretty soon it's spreading all over the place and by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts Paul shows up in Rome and there's already Christians in Rome But you have Paul getting there and you're kind of going, well, the gospel has gotten everywhere in the world. In a span of about 30 years, it's everywhere from just being a religion that's kind of in this Jewish place with this, you know, man who was a Jew and that was the one who died on a cross. I mean, this is, you see the expansion. And so you can kind of go, well, I I agree with them that there has been in this world kind of an expansion that has taken place in the church, but you also have to look at it and go, really, do you have, in in our culture, do we have Christianity across the globe? And the answer is no. At best, 5% of the population knows Jesus Christ as Savior. At best. Now, that's, that's really, really being optimistic. That's in the United States. That's across the world across the whole world, that would be your percentages more than likely. Um, United States, it might be a little bit higher number-wise than 5%. I would say that it probably is because we tend to have that, but even then, it's not like our whole culture has come to Christ. So you just kind of go, well, okay, maybe that's not what this is meaning. When you talk about premillennialists, you're going, okay, we understand the fact that right now we're not building the kingdom or expanding the kingdom, but there is some kind of growth that's going on. The church is going out into the world. We're commissioned to go out into the world and preach the gospel and to, to teach the nations that's going on. So what does this parable mean? And I, I, as I said, I pulled down 15 commentaries. I, you know, I, this, is, you know, this is the time where... You know, you have a whole bunch of commentaries on your shelf. 
on certain books of the Bible and the like, and I have a whole bunch of them. You go in there and you do use all of them. And I will tell you this, books are tools. It's like a mechanic in a, a, car, sh- a car dealership, but he's got to work on cars. He's got certain tools that he will probably only pull out once or twice in his lifetime. But he's got the tool available. I, I went through and went to tools that I've never used before on my shelf, and I don't really plan to. They're there, whatever. Uh, I may get rid of them as I'm starting to call out stuff because I'm getting older, and you're like, I know what I use and whatever. But I went through these. And you had people who were amillennialists. This was a shocker to me. You had people who, one was a radio preacher who was known for his sermons on the radio and had books that he sold as a result of his sermons uh, that is a amillennialist that took the position, the second position, which absolutely shocked me. You're like, whoa, where did he come up with? Now, he applied it to the fact that we have a secular church and that we've allowed all sorts of things to come in. He preached, you know, we need to clean up the church which, okay, that's an application of it, but that was his major thought. I have another man that I've just started reading his material, and he is an individual who's written a whole book about the kingdom. From Old Testament right on into the New Testament, he's a dispensationalist. He would be right in line with what we believe on a lot of things. And I went to his section on Matthew chapter 13 and this parable, and he said this parable is all about the expansion of the kingdom. I'm just like, what? You know, no, no questions about the other, you know, opinion, whatever. He just kind of goes, this is very clear, and he just kind of runs on. So even, you know, even though you might label this, you have people of different prophetic viewpoints that are coming up with different interpretations of what Jesus was saying here. And admittedly, when I was young, when I came to a passage like this, I'd just say, oh, it's just the advancement of the gospel, the expansion of the gospel, and you just keep going, but mm, there's some problems with this. And what I'm going to give you this evening is the reasons that right now I am on the side of saying, I think this is talking about an infiltration of, you know, false teachings, false workers, in what we're doing right now in the preaching of the gospel. Okay, that's what I believe it's talking about. But even this morning, I told people this morning in the, 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 the time that we had this morning, that I read stuff this morning, I'm like, well, you know, I could go with the other view possibly. I could see where they're going. But I'm, I'm going to give you why, because I'm going to walk you through why I would do the interpretation I'm coming up with using the same steps I would use for any of the parables. Okay? So I'm I'm, I'm telling you, I'm doing this on the basis of how I interpret already. I'm going through and saying, I have to come to this opinion, though I will be a conflict with other good individuals, and when we get to heaven, we'll get set completely right. And I thought about this. What if somebody gets up and next week I invite them as a missionary and they come in and they preach this passage talking about the expansion of the gospel? Would I get up in the the evening service and go, heresy, I cannot believe this was said. No, I will not say that. I'll just go, okay, you know, I believe that there's gospel work going forward and whatever, but I don't think this is what the parable's emphasizing. And good men would disagree on this, and so just understand what I'm about to say here is... When I'm telling you how I'm interpreting it, 
and you may come to a different conclusion on this, and you would be in good company on both sides. So why do I go with the idea that infiltration, the king, uh, that, that the idea that there's evil infiltrating the work of the gospel going out right now? The good news. Number one, do you see this statement? The mustard seed becoming a tree is abnormal. This, I'm telling you, this is the weakest point out of the, three, out of the four I have. There's some people that note this and go, it's kind of unusual because you would say a mustard tree was a bush, but you would never say it's a tree. And with the Lord saying, as you read the passage here, he talks about that he becomes a, the, the greatest of all the herbs, you know, the, the, these bushes, these herbs that are there, and then it becomes a tree that the birds rest in, that people in that culture would have been like, whoa, that's really unusual. It's not a tree, it's a bush. And so right from the start, there would be this kind of thought process of the people that are there going, there's something not right with this story, something odd about it. Okay, and I'm just putting this out here because the next one, as we talk about it, um, will be, you know, starting that whole process of, okay, this is kind of strange. But you have this, it would become a tree. If Jesus wanted to show something that could be grand and live for a long time, he could have used another plant common to that region. It would have been the cedar tree. Because you need a cedar tree, and the cedar tree is the greatest of all the trees, grows to 120 feet in height and can last for 2,000 years as far as age. And it comes from a cone, but the cone is not what grows it. There's the seeds that come out of this, and a little seed that comes out there grows this magnificent tree. We would, in our culture, we'd say, you know, it's like the sequoias. You know, these redwoods out there that, that grow and grow and grow and grow, and they've been there for hundreds of years. And they grow really tall. Um, and it would have come from just a small seed. Uh, so in this story, you're kind of going, oh. you know, there's something maybe not quite right in this because people would be like, you know, I could find something that would actually prove that story a little bit better. And if I'm trying to prove the expansion and longevity and the, the grandness of this, um, I would have used a different one. Okay, so that, that by far is the weakest point I have on this one. Back page, number two. Number two says this. In the context of the surrounding parables, birds represent the work of Satan. See, what I told you is from the beginning, when it comes to interpreting parables, you look at the surrounding context. What's the surrounding context? Jesus is telling a whole bunch of parables And he even started off with a parable that had birds in it. First parable Jesus tells, the parable of the soils, and the sower goes out and he throws and he casts the seed out there, and it lands first of all on the wayside soil, and the birds come along and pluck this off the ground. And you go, well, what does that represent? The Lord tells us. Interpretation of this, these birds are the devil, his workers. Kind of like, okay. Well, I'm coming to a parable that I don't know the meaning of it. But I'm looking at the context surrounding it and going, okay, we've had birds mentioned once before. Would the Lord tell a parable that he wouldn't give explanation to, but that, okay, birds previously meant 
evil workers, okay, I'm supposed to take this as bad when you have this tree that grows and the birds come in. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. Now, when you have people that look at this story, immediately as, they, as soon as they see birds resting in a tree, they think of one story. Okay, it's a story that you find, uh, the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, verses 12 and 21. You go, what's Daniel chapter 4? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He can't get an interpretation of it, but it's this great tree that grows, and it grows and grows and grows, and, and uh, it suddenly is so large that all the birds of heaven come and nest in this. And then it gets cut down and it's, 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 you know, it's strapped together for seven years. And he's like, what does this mean? And so the interpretation of this uh, dream that he has about birds resting in a tree is that Daniel comes along and goes, well, this is you. I mean, your kingdom has gotten so great that you ha- have all the nations as a part of it. And uh, these birds represent the different nations that are resting in the branches of your kingdom. Uh, and then you're going to be cut down, which you know the story. He's cut down for seven years. He eats, uh, he's lifted up in pride while looking at his buildings in Babylon. It says, look at great Babylon I've built. And the Lord immediately strikes him. He is uh, eating uh, grass like an oxen for the next seven years. He loses his mind. You're kind of going okay, well, I, I could see, you know, if we're looking elsewhere in the Bible, maybe, okay, you've got these birds resting in the branches, and that means kind of protection or being a part of this and whatever, but you have a story of someone being cut down, complete pagan. And so some will turn to that and just go, well, it's the expansion of the, the church because it's talking about the fact that all nations are a part of this. You're kind of going, well, okay, the gospel is going to go to all nations, but my problem is, is that in the immediate context, looking at the surrounding context, trying to get answers on this, you're kind of going, hmm, birds are bad. I mean, that's, you get to the end, but when interpreting a passage is difficult, the context will give some direction. In this case, birds are not good, okay? So that's the second point. The third one gets really, 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 really strong. And that's when you're dealing with the parable of the leaven. As you read point number three, it says this, leaven in most passages in the Old Testament and New Testament is not good. Okay, I mean, if we were to go through and take a commentary and look at leaven and look at all the times that it's there used in Scripture, for the most part, it's telling you it's bad. Jews did not offer leaven and burnt sacrifices. They didn't do it. You go, why? Because these sacrifices represented what Christ was going to do on his cross by offering himself up as a sacrifice, and you could not put leaven into these sacrifices. Now, you had other sacrifices that you had that were Thanksgiving meals or whatever, and you could enjoy bread that had leaven in it. But, but you didn't with these offerings, you did not with the burnt offerings, you did not put in Leaven, you go, why? Because it was a picture of sin. And Jesus was the sinless son of God when he was offered as a sacrifice. And so you don't put leaven, anything of leaven in there. In fact, as you look at the Passover and the week following, Jews removed yeast from their homes as a picture of the removal of sins. You have the first Passover and they're told this, get rid of all the leaven. Now there's a practical thing on this one initially, but it's going to picture something. This is the 10th plague that's going to happen. 
When they're going to Passover, they're told this, dress as if you're ready to go. Put your sandals on, get your staff in your hand, and be ready to move because when this happens, you're going to move. Well, you're not going to want to have bread that you're waiting for it to rise. In fact, you want bread that you can cook immediately and be able to do that. So there's a practical side of this. But for generations to come, when you had the Passover, you removed all leaven out of your house. I've always thought about this. You know, what do you do? You put it in you know, the shed in the back. You know, I mean, what, what did you do for the, that week? Because you're going to need it again. But whatever the case is, you cleared out of your house. And for the, day, the Passover day, and then you had the feast of, afterwards, it was called this, feast of unleavened bread. No leaven in the bread. So basically you're eating flat bread. You're doing this uh, for this, and you say, well, what did this picture? Well, it's going to picture something, but it's the idea that they understood, okay, you're getting something bad that represents something bad out of the house. Not that it is bad, because they could eat this on other occasions, but in this picturing, you understand that it's symbolic of evil. And you would go, okay, coming to this parable, you'd kind of go, all right, good. That, that could be the meaning of it. But then it gets really strong on the fact that when Jesus talks about leaven and all the other passages, it's not good. It is not good. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 takes place after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and feeds the 4,000. So he's had this you know, multiplication of bread that he's had and whatever. And so his disciples and him are going on a trip. In Matthew chapter 16, verse number 6, Jesus says this, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I mean, it, just, it, it just seems to be a statement that comes out of the blue. I mean, it's, the way you're reading this, it's, Jesus had been dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verse 1 who were trying to tempt him, deceive him, to get in them to do something. But, you know, they're suddenly going on this trip, and all of a sudden the Lord just says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so what do the, the disciples do? Well, verse 7, they reasoned amongst themselves saying, it's because we have no bread. We didn't bring any bread with us on this trip. Oh, no. Uh, the Lord's not happy with us. And that's their thinking. And the Lord goes, okay, well, let me just talk about this because that's not what I'm talking about. Verse number eight, which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, oh, ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves because ye have brought no bread? Do you not understand, neither remember the five loaves of the thousand and how many baskets ye took up, neither the seven loaves of the four thousand, how many baskets ye took up? I mean, if I was really wanting to have bread, I could make it. I mean, it's really what he's saying. Okay, you know, you, you forgot this. You know, for 13 of us here, I could make this really easily. I made it for 5,000 and 4,000. But verse 11, he says this, how is it that you do not understand that I spake it unto you, not to, to you to concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of uh, the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What he's saying is those things that they're teaching, you need to beware of. It's got destructive power to it. You got to beware of it because it can suddenly blossom into something that is uncontrollable. And so you have this statement. And I want us to turn over to the, another passage, Mark chapter 8 and verse 15, because it's a, the same event, 
but you get a little bit of different detail in Mark. And I think it's partially because Mark is writing to Romans, so they would understand this a little bit better. Mark chapter 8, yep, verse uh, number 15. Verse 14 says this, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. So there they, you know, you have, they don't have bread with them, except for one, you know, one flat cake, basically. Uh, in verse 15, And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the, or the leaven of whom? Herod. Okay? You go, why Herod? The Pharisees are the ones who are teaching out in the community, roundabout, in different communities. The main group of Sadducees you would find in Jerusalem, and they would be made up of the priests and the Levites. Right in the center of where Roman power is at. And the richest and wealthiest individuals in society were the priests and the Levites. You say, where were they getting rich off of? Uh, Probably those things that the Lord flipped over in the temple. I mean, that's part of it. But, but these individuals were ones who were okay with Rome being around because Rome made sure everything was in order and safe and they could make their profit because there was a protection from the, the, uh, the government that was run by Herod at the time. And so they had an affinity for Herod. So you're talking probably about the Sadducees, but it's emphasizing the fact that these individuals just like Herod and his policies as far as allowing them to do what they were doing, the practices they were a part of. So when you hear the Lord talking about this, middle of that section in verse 3, in those contexts, he was warning of practices, ideas, and theologies. Okay, These, this is what he's warning them of. Here's some practices, some ideas, some theologies, to doctrines, teachings you don't want to follow because it's dangerous, it's destructive, it's bad, and he uses leaven. To picture this. So you have Christ in all the other contexts when he's talking about leaven. It's obviously not good. And this continues. I want you to turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Now you have the Apostle Paul. I mean, you just follow this out in the Scripture. Galatians chapter 5. Uh, this is a book that is dealing with the fact of the combating of grace and the law. There were many people that were were Jews that were coming to Gentiles and saying, well, you can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ, but you've got to add such and such, such and such, and such and such in order to truly be a Christian and truly be saved. And the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5 and talking about these people in these Galatian churches that they started off well. Verse 7, ye did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Who cut in on you in this race that kind of made you trip up and stumble? Verse 8, This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And what he's simply saying is this. You have teachers that brought this teaching in that you have to have the law as part of your grace and you add these things together. And what he's saying is just a little bit of that kind of thinking can bring great destruction to the church. The teaching of the gospel of grace and you've allowed this to come in. Just a little bit in your thinking to perhaps taint it that maybe, maybe there is this fact that I have to combine works with grace. He says, don't do that. 
you're running well to this point, and now you're thinking of this, and you're stumbling, and this could, you know, you may not finish the race. You know, what do you mean by that? There may be some people that had come to the understanding that maybe Christianity was good, but by the time they're done, they're not Christians because they didn't come to a full understanding that Jesus Christ alone saves. Paul doesn't stop there. I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is an occasion where you have the church allowing for an individual to stay in their church membership that is committing immorality that even the world is going, that's bad. And that's saying a lot for the, the city of Corinth to be going, this isn't good. And the church was kind of like, hey, look, we've got so much grace, we can allow an individual to stay in our church like this. It's okay, it's great. And, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... When you're gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 5, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You need to get rid of this individual out of your membership. No questions asked. This person's unrepentant. Get him out. And then you have this statement. Verse 6, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? What ought you to do? Verse 7, purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, that as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice or wicked and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's saying, listen, you need to understand that you have this fellowship with Christ. He's your Passover lamb. Don't be unifying him and his body with things that bring disdain to his name, that destroy his testimony and will destroy you if you continue to allow this. You know, you have an individual that's getting away with this and you suddenly have other people going, well, I can do this and this in the church because we have a person that does this, I can do this. And you suddenly have a church that has destroyed itself in practice. They're doing whatever they want. So all of this being said, okay, you know, someone's going to ask me what, the, what the, the blanks are here. Even Paul warned of the leaven trying to combine grace and the law, Galatians 5, 7 through 9. He told believers to remove the leaven of malice because Christ was their Passover lamb. He's the one that frees us from death and the penalty of it. Now, here's the final note here. The only time leaven seems to be okay is when it is not being used symbolically and being used in bread to eat. I mean, I just preached on a passage where you had leavened bread. Genesis chapter 18, Abraham meets with the the two angels and God himself, not knowing this initially, but he has these strangers that he invites into his home, and he goes to his wife and says, you need to make some bread, and she makes up three gallons worth, just like you have in this story, three gallons worth of bread, and it's not leavened bread because the, or, or excuse me, unleavened bread, it's leavened bread. Because it takes time to also cook the, 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 the calf that's been killed for this and everything else. And so this is good bread. Because there's a contrast when you get to Genesis chapter 19 when Lot has his guests show up and it's like, oh, here, have some unleavened bread. You go, why is he giving unleavened bread? Because it's quick. You don't have to wait for the bread to rise or anything like that. And so he's going, here, eat this. But 
you know, it's generally good only when you're talking about stuff to eat. But when you start having symbolism and it's talking about doctrine and that type of thing, it's not good. It's always, as you go throughout the scripture from beginning to end, it's not a good thing. So you just kind of go, so that parable with the 11 being stuck into this is symbolizing that you've got stuff being inserted into something that's not good. And the answer is, mm-hmm, probably. Number four, very quickly, we spent a lot of time, but this is the last one. Here's the other thing that we ought to remember. These two parables are surrounded by the parable of the tares and its explanation. So you you go back to Matthew chapter 13 and you find that as you read through and you just go through the count in order, you suddenly have Jesus telling a story in verse 24 about the parable of the tares. He finishes the parable of the tares and he immediately goes into verse 31, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven, and then starting in verse 37, he goes through and he gives the explanation of what the parable of tares meant. So on either side of this, this, these two parables that have no explanation, you have this one parable that is describing that there are going to be individuals uh, that are not a part of the kingdom that would be right alongside those looking forward to the kingdom and they would be opposed to the ones going to the kingdom and looking forward to it. And you kind of go, so these two parables in between the explanation might be saying kind of the same thing, that there is going to be bad going on while the message of the gospel is going on also. You know, you have this thing that's expanding, but the birds come in, and it's, that's not good. And then you have this, this stuff that's coming into the church that's exploding the church. It grows uh, in ways you don't want it. To, you have false teachers that suddenly show up. I would say this in that that final sentence there, these two parables serve as warnings that believers need to be aware of the work that the devil is doing in the church and the world around them. I mean, this is the message of the apostles. You read through all of the epistles, and and, and I'm, I'm trying to think there may be one or two that doesn't have it, maybe Philemon and and uh, that, but most of your epistles have warnings about false teachers. False teachers, false doctrine. There, there's warnings about this. Don't allow this to happen in the church. Even when you get to Revelation, you have the seven churches there, and there's warning about false teaching there, false teachers, bad practices, and there's warnings going out. You know, you, granted, you're a church, but don't let this make you go, we're okay. No, the devil's at work trying to destroy that. So I go with this as being just a picture of the fact that you have things that will infiltrate the, ch- the church's work right now. The church is not the kingdom, but inf- infiltrate our preaching of the gospel message right now and uh, try and damage it, the testimony of it, uh, and this will go right on into the kingdom. And when the kingdom finally gets set up, then you'll have a, a different set of problems when the Lord's here ruling and reigning. But for right now, we've got to really be aware of this and not just merely go, well, everything's okay. No, it's not. Uh, and that. So, and if you go on the other side, fine, great. But that, that's kind of what I'm doing. But it's, it's going, look at the context, look at larger surrounding contexts, this type of thing, how it's used otherwise. And this is a good practice. If you have a questionable, pa- pra- a questionable passage, 
don't get your main interpretation from this passage, have other things to back it up, which I could go through and have hundreds of passages talking about the dangers of infiltration of the church by false teaching and that. Uh, I wouldn't come to this one and have this as my main text to prove this, but I'd say I think this one is heading that direction also. It just adds to the burden of proof and evidence. So, yeah. So, hey, you've gone through probably one of the hardest passages of Scripture as far as coming up with the right interpretation. And as I said, we may get to glory and go, hmm, okay. Was a little off on that one. Um, And that being the case. Any questions? Thoughts on this? I mean, it's, yeah. Wow, you're all veterans. Good. Steve? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I could go talk to people now that I know and call them up. We could go, hey, what do you think of this passage? And you'll have someone, some that will say the other side of it. And they're good people. People I'd invite to come here and preach in our church. <clears throat> no. This is, not, this is not false doctrine we're preaching here. It's two different ideas that are here. And um, both of them do have some credence in the, 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 the gospel and in the New Testament. It's not that. So, yeah. So yeah, call up your friends and find out what they believe in this. <laughs> yeah.